Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. This is the third in a series of bonus podcasts on which I cover topics not directly related to any one particular person or event in the history of surgery, but rather interesting topics that I wouldn't otherwise cover. To celebrate the completion of the 50th episode, granted a little belatedly, I thought we'd do this bonus one on a topic I've always thought interesting, the historical relationship of barbers and surgeons. Thank you to everyone for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy this bonus podcast. To understand the relationship between barbers and surgeons, we have to go back to the Dark Age of Europe. As we've touched on in previous episodes, the art of surgery was actually fairly advanced and scholarly in many parts of the world, including the Greek and Roman empires. Hippocratic tradition of ancient Greece had surgical practice integrated into all of medicine. There were ingenious methods of wound care and surgical procedures mostly related to trauma received in war. In fact, the importance of practical experience for surgeons was acknowledged, with Hippocrates himself stating, quote, he who desires to practice surgery must go to war, end quote. Interestingly, in the Hippocratic Oath, the role of surgery is defined, quote, I will not use the knife, not even on sufferers from stone, meaning bladder stones, but will withdraw in favor of such men as are engaged in this work, end quote. Now, this was not a repudiation of surgery as removed from medical practice, but rather surgery was affirmed as intrinsic to the knowledge of all healers, writing, quote, what drugs fail to cure, the knife cures, end quote. But this required skills, which could only be developed with dedicated training. Now, keeping with the theme of trauma-related surgery, Galen, the famous Roman physician, was surgeon to the gladiators. In fact, part of his legend is that in his time for caring for them, only five gladiators died compared to 60 in his predecessor's time. He would go on to become one of the most influential physicians and surgeons of all time, with his anatomical and physiological principles and medical theories lasting until the 17th century. However, much knowledge was lost, or at least forgotten in Europe, during the Dark Ages. By the Middle Ages, the Church had established control over nearly all aspects of life, including medicine. Priests and monks became quite intimate with the barbers because the latter were frequently employed to shave the heads of the priests, according to the uniform of their order. The clergy also frequently employed the barbers to shave the heads of patients, before they prescribed washes to cool the fever of the brain, or blisters to draw the peccant humors from the surface. Since barbers had experience with sharp instruments like razors and scissors, they would assist the monks in bleeding patients and performing such little operations as they were competent to direct, as well as to make salves and poultices and to dress wounds and sores. And in fact, the church became increasingly concerned with surgical practice by clerics and physicians and attempted to discourage members of monastic orders from engaging in surgical practice. There were a number of church policies created to reflect this, first in 1131 at the Council of Reims and then in 1163 at the Council of Tours, but these had little effect. It wasn't until 1215 when Pope Innocent III issued the Fourth Lateran Council, a signal document in the history of medieval medicine that things began to change. This document made many important edicts involving many aspects of life. It forbade members of the clergy, who were acting as physicians, from performing any form of surgical treatment as contact with blood or bodily fluids was felt to be contaminating. Men of the church could not celebrate the Eucharist with blood-stained hands. Also, medieval surgical practices were very dangerous, so the possibility of charges of manslaughter were real, which exposed the assets of the church to a lawsuit. A surgical care was left to untrained practitioners like village wise women, quacks, charlatans, and by monks who left the monastery to continue to practice surgery. Lesser procedures were performed by a class of barbers, who also cut hair and performed bloodletting, as prescribed by physicians to restore humoral balance. A quick aside, if I haven't mentioned it before, the concept of the four humors, which were blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm, is credited to Hippocrates. The balance of these humors was considered the key to health, and imbalances had to be corrected. 
This theory dominated Western medicine up until the Renaissance. In 1308, the Worshipful Company of Barbers of London was formed and was established by ordinance in 1376 and received royal charter in 1462. Interesting side note, it's actually still active today. It has lost connection to barbers, but now acts as a livery company, active in educational and health-related charitable work. Now at the time, the Barber's Company was a large craft guild, charged with regulating the trade among members. Barbers at that time provided shaves, haircuts, bloodletting, and dentistry. Now here's something to think about that I'd never noticed before. Consider the similarities between the dentist chair and the barber chair. Now with the rising merchant class, there was an expansion of trade unions or guilds for every field of commerce, including surgery. The surgeons attempted to use guild regulations to distinguish themselves from barbers, but there were only a small number of members in the Fellowship of Surgeons, established in 1365, not enough to be incorporated as a guild. It's estimated there were only 8 to 20 surgeons in 15th century London. In addition to some of the more minor surgical procedures like those provided by the barbers, these surgeons also performed more invasive procedures like castration, lithotomy, which is the removal of bladder stones, and amputations. Even prominent surgeons who were members of the fellowship also held office in the barber's company, which saw increasing political influence from their numbers and from royal patronage. Kings Edward IV and Richard III were members of the company. So a rivalry existed between the two guilds as they provided similar services and they competed for members and political power. In the 14th and 15th century, the Black Plague wiped out the majority of university-trained physicians, likely due to their exposure to patients, and barbers became in great demand, raising their profile in the realm of healthcare. It is likely that this increasing role and the health of a king led to a merger between the two groups. Allow me to explain. In the late 1520s, King Henry VIII began treatment of his chronic leg ulcers, which were possibly related to varicose veins. The king retained two full-time surgeons between 1528 and 31, three in 1538, five in 1543, and no fewer than six the following year. Now, during this time, the surgeon Thomas Vickery was recipient of the king's confidence and would play an important role in the events to follow. In 1540, King Henry VIII signed a charter incorporating barbers and surgeons by act of parliament as the Guild of Barbers and Surgeons in London. This union established a framework for surgical education by apprenticeship within the guild system and also legitimized surgical skills through governmental recognition. The idea was to end the rivalry to gain credibility and political clout, and this united company of barber surgeons became dedicated to surgical treatments and dental extractions. This linking of barbers and surgeons occurred elsewhere in Europe, and possibly the most famous surgeon of the medieval times, Ambrose Paré, was a member of the Parisian Barber Surgeon Guild. One interesting addition was that one of the Articles of Incorporation granted the bodies of four executed criminals yearly to the Guild for anatomic lectures, attendance at which was required by all members. It is said that Vickery, who would become the first master of the company of barber surgeons, helped to obtain this right. This regulation, though important in the advancement of anatomical and surgical knowledge, also left a significant shortage of cadavers to work upon, leading to the scourge of grave robbing that haunted Europe for centuries. Now that surgeons had aligned with barbers and formalized their role in the treatment of patients, it's interesting to look at their relationship with physicians, also a significant separation of the time. Now in Renaissance Europe, universities didn't offer formal education in surgery, as it was deemed a trade, meaning manual work, and many physicians felt that it was equivalent to butchering. Physicians would train in medical school and receive a Doctor of Medicine degree, whereas barber surgeons trained as apprentices and took an examination to receive their diploma. In fact, the Royal College of Physicians existed in part to distinguish barber surgeons from doctors, which continued during the establishment of hospitals, which were ruled by physicians. 
surgeons had to perform their trade in commercial buildings and used the red and white striped pole to indicate their locations. The red was to indicate blood loss from bloodletting, the white for the bandages used to blot the bleeding vein, and the pole for the pole that the patient would squeeze to make the vein stand out. This was sometimes capped with a top that represented the basin which would collect the blood. Now this symbol lives on in the poles we see today outside the barbershop. Now some have blue stripes as well. This does not represent veins as commonly thought, but rather was added in the U.S. for patriotic reasons. So this relationship between barbers and surgeons continued for over 200 years until in 1745 King George II issued the separation of barber surgeons in England into two separate entities, as the surgeons wanted to break away from the barbers. This movement was led by William Cheseldon, a teacher of John Hunter, see podcast 50, and was because they found the barber surgeons too restrictive. Now they formed a separate company of surgeons. Their role was to register surgeons' apprenticeships and to examine trainee surgeons at the end of their training, providing a diploma rather than a degree. The company was permitted to teach anatomy, and so they built a hall and anatomy theater close to Newgate Jail and the Old Bailey to make it easier to dissect the bodies of executed criminals. The company became the Royal College of Surgeons in London in 1800, being granted a new charter by King George III. In 1843, this was changed to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And as mentioned, the barbers returned to become the worshipful company of barbers which still exists to this day. Now, by the early 1800s, physicians and surgeons trained side by side in medical school and received the same degree to practice medicine. In the United Kingdom and Ireland, as a continuing legacy to the historical separation of physicians and surgeons, medical consultants are called doctor and surgeons are addressed as Mr. or Miss, Ms. or Mrs. It is in this way that the legend of the barber surgeon lives on. Well, that wraps up this bonus episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, don't worry, I will still put out the regularly scheduled podcast this Friday as mentioned at the end of the last podcast, so watch for that. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Mm